morning. Uh, my name's Alex, um, and I'm reading the Bible for us today. Um, Matthew chapter 18, and starting at verse uh, 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for the warm welcome I've already received. Let's begin by praying. Our dear Heavenly Father, please make your message to us clear this morning and help us to respond in trust and obedience. Amen. Well, when I was a young man, which uh, is an increasingly long time ago, I had some friends in the church that became really well known for breaking up and getting back together again. It happened so often that I remember when it came to our wedding and we were doing seating plans, we thought, should we put them together or not? What if they break up before the wedding? Well, we did put them together. We kind of had to, right? But they did, wait. they did break up before the wedding and we just decided to leave them together. It was their problem. To today, they're happily married and it's a lovely marriage. Jesus says this should be the norm, not the dating thing, but people who are hurt or hurt by others getting back together and being restored in their relationship. Jesus is in his last few weeks of life here. He's already told his disciples that he's only got weeks to live. And so he's giving them some last minute instructions about how they should live after he's gone. 
He's just taught them about how to restore a brother or sister into relationship. You may remember in Matthew 17, just in the chapter before this, first you go to them and you try to uh, restore your relationship. If that doesn't work, you take a couple of other people. If that still doesn't work, you take the whole church and only after, if that doesn't work, do you treat them like a non-believer. Well, Peter then comes to him at the beginning of this passage and he's asking a question that seems to relate to, perhaps he's wondering if there's a missing detail. How many times do I need to forgive? I don't think Peter's asking about how many times he needs to forgive his wife for stealing the blankets while they sleep or borrowing his sandals and leaving them in the rain. It's, it's more likely in the context, it's about this act of restoration, forgiving someone for something which has actually broken that relationship. And so he poses a number that he thinks will make him look quite good in front of Jesus, a generous number of seven. And it, it was generous because the rabbis taught that you had to forgive three times. So he's actually taken it, doubled it, added one for good measure. Now, my friends, I'm not sure whether they did break up seven times or not. They'd already done it a couple of times by the time I met them, but I suspect not. But Jesus says, not even seven times, 77 times. I'm absolutely sure my friends didn't break up 77 times. And can you imagine if there were two people in the church who had hurt each other and then forgiven each other and been restored and done it again and again, if, if it happened 77 times? It's kind of a silly number. Imagine trying to keep count. That's number 16. If you were trying to keep count, you've totally lost the point. Because the number seven in the Bible often signifies completeness. So 77 is kind of a reinforcement of that, just total completeness. Forgive them completely, don't keep count. Every brother or sister, every sin, every time. Now, if that sounds a bit unachievable or unbelievable, Jesus goes on to tell a story to show that he really means it. We'll get into more detail in the story, but basically what he's saying is that there was a, a man who owed a huge debt that he could never repay to a king. The king forgave him that debt, and then he went out and found someone who owed him much less, choked him, demanding payment, and uh, people were basically outraged by it. Debt is something that most of us are quite familiar with, I'm sure. At work, whenever we have a, a birthday, I had one a couple of weeks ago, so this is fresh to me, they ask you a couple of questions so that people can get to know you better. And one of the questions they always ask is, what would you do if you won the lottery? Well, everyone just says, well, I'd pay off my debt. So it's a pretty dumb question because it just elicits a boring response all the time. And for me, it's an even dumber question because I don't buy lottery tickets. So it got me thinking, what would happen if someone I knew won the lottery? Maybe my neighbour. What do I think would happen then? What, what would I say to him the next time I saw him? Like, hey, George, good friend, good neighbour. Is there anything you want to talk to me about? Just imagine he came back and said, oh, yeah, you know, I spotted you 50 bucks the other day because that tradie wanted cash and you didn't have it. Well, do you have it now? 
I want to wash my new car. I don't have a hose reel. And if you've got 50 bucks, I can go up to Bunnings. I can get quite a good one with the money I was going to spend and that 50. But look, if you don't, I'll take yours. It's secondhand. It's probably only worth 50 bucks now. So when you get the money, you can buy a new one yourself. A horrible cheapskate sort of person, wouldn't it? No one likes a cheapskate. Jesus shows that no one has liked a cheapskate for thousands of years because that's who he talks about in his parable. And my story, of course, it's, it's very similar to Jesus' story. It's pretty much a copy, but if I may say so, I, I do think mine's a bit more realistic. It's a bit more relatable, a bit more believable. Like Jesus' story, quite frankly, isn't. Look at the numbers he's talking about in the passage. The king forgave the servant 10,000 talents. Now, one talent was about 20 years' wages. So this is 200,000 years of wages. 200,000 years. What a stupid amount. Like, who can relate to that? What was Jesus thinking? Well, actually, we know what he's thinking. He tells us. He's, he's thinking about the depth of the sin for which we've been forgiven. He has a right perspective on it. 200,000 years is an understatement of what we've been forgiven. The, the just and right payment for our sin is eternal. 200,000 years, 200,000 times over. Jesus' answer to how often we should forgive, it might seem extraordinary, but that's because the debt that we owe is extraordinary. It's my numbers in my silly lottery example that were just silly, way too small, not Jesus. And yet even knowing this, we still struggle to grasp the depth of the sin and the forgiveness that we've been given. Occasionally we get glimpses. A couple of years ago, I did a review with one of my team members and he told me something fairly personal um, because it was useful to know, you know the years ahead what might come uh, for his career. And so I typed it up and I sent it back to him and I said, is this a fair reflection of our discussion of the review? And he said to me, well, yes, but... I'm glad you're thinking about it and, and you, know, you, you know, but I'd really rather you didn't type that in a document. Can you please delete it? So, yeah, sure, I said. So I took that bit out and I saved it into the completed reviews directory where you have to store them. A few days later, some people at work were saying that they didn't really know how the new appraisal process worked. The, the document they were meant to fill out was in a PDF and... You know, they couldn't fill it out. And I said, don't worry, I've converted it to Word. I've got a template I'll send you. You're probably well ahead of me here. So I sent out to everybody appraisal template dot doc. Somewhere along the line, I'd copied my team member's original review over appraisal template dot doc. And so that personal comment in the document went out to around about 160 people. This sort of thing happens all the time in sitcoms, doesn't it? Uh, in real life, it's not funny. I didn't feel 
kind of amused and lightly entertained by what had happened. I was mortified. My stomach churned until it hurt. I, I tried to recall a message, but anyone who's done that will know half of them get recalled, and then the other half, people just get sent a message saying, you want to recall it, and so what do they do? They go and look and try and find out why. I wanted to call him and say sorry, but he's in London, and it was nighttime in London, so I couldn't. I checked the email again, thinking, well, maybe I was wrong. Maybe it really was blank. And, and then I checked it again. And Einstein says that if you repeat the same action expecting a different result, it's a sign of insanity. Well, I was totally insane that night. I did it again and again. And by the time the morning came around, my stomach, the churning there had made its way into the chest and then into the throat. So when I finally got onto him, I was squeaking, I'm so sorry. I don't know how you're ever going to forgive me. It's interesting, isn't it, that that example that sprang to mind for me was like it's an example where I desperately wanted to be forgiven, but actually what I'd done was pretty much unintentional. And I reflected on that, and I think the reason is when I hurt someone unintentionally, I really do want the best for them, and so I'm genuinely really sorry that I've hurt them. When I hurt someone intentionally, I think I probably don't really care that much. So the reason my own sin doesn't seem too big to me is that I really don't love the people I hurt because I'm sinful. I think maybe the reason I see people's sin against me is so big is because, well, I really do love myself above all others because I'm sinful. The reason forgiving other people seems so difficult is not so much because their sin against me, but because of my sin within me. I think this is also why we feel so much more sorry for hurting someone when we meet someone they love or that loves them, like their parent or their spouse. Imagine then every sin we've ever done against anybody laid bare in front of the God who created them and loves them more than we could possibly imagine. Well, actually, we don't really need to imagine because the Bible tells us a couple of examples of where this happens. In Isaiah 6, the Lord appeared, appeared to Isaiah and he said, "'Woe to me, I am ruined!' I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And Peter, who asked the question at the beginning of this passage, when he realized Jesus' divinity in an earlier miracle, he said, he fell on his knees and he said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. I've never reached that point where, rather than begging for forgiveness, I'm just saying, just, I'm too sinful, I'm too evil. I love you, but go away from me. I can't stand what I've done. But that is the situation that we are all in, or we were all in before God. Well, back to my work colleague. I finally managed to speak to him, and here's what he said to me. Don't worry about it. It's not a problem. 
You just made a mistake. Anyone could have made that mistake. Don't feel bad about it. Look, you seem concerned. Don't ever think about this again. I will never think about it again, I promise you. It's already forgotten. How do you think I felt then? Forgiveness, forgiveness is so sweet, isn't it? And my example is so pithy compared to the forgiveness that God has lavished on us. Just like my lottery example was so pithy compared to Jesus' example. As as Christians, at the very, very least, we should be running around like lottery winners. Forgiveness lottery winners, if such a thing existed. Remember that lie you told about me? Don't worry about it. It's forgiven. Remember when you you tried to embarrass me in front of my friends? Don't worry about it. It's forgiven. Or remember you stole my car, you drove it into my house, it exploded, my house burnt down, I didn't have insurance, I had to sell it. Don't worry about it. I've been forgiven much worse things than that. All right, I'm being a bit silly, but it's still valid because Jesus isn't talking about small sins. Now, I'm well behind on these slides. Sorry about that. Um, (laughs) But let's go back and have a look at the parable. In verse 28, in Jesus' story, the slave was owed 100 days wages. I think it's 100 denarii. 100 days wages. In Australian weekly earnings, that's about $35,000. That's the kind of debt that if you weren't repaid it, you, you would lose quite a few nights sleep, I imagine. Or, you know, it would take many weeks or months or maybe even years of sacrifice to make up for that. And can you imagine the sob story that it would make when you're talking to your friends, the kind of sympathy that you'd get, the shared indignation and condemnation for the person who hadn't paid you back, that thing, you really should get that money back or really should be punished for it. But that's not the reaction that the servant in Jesus' story received from people around him. They didn't think it was terrible that he hadn't been paid it. They were, they were outraged that he was asking for repayment at all. See, the context is, makes all the difference. Non-Christians haven't been forgiven. So when they're wronged, it's just natural that they should be aggrieved and demand compensation. As Christians, it's totally different. We have been forgiven all our sin against anyone for all eternity. And so no sin against us should grieve us. No sin. We should forgive every brother or sister, every sin, every time. As Christians, our forgiveness should be so remarkable to non-Christians, just a totally different plan to anyone else they know. We should be known as those people who seem to be completely unfazed by anything that anyone does against us. The most forgiving people in the world. Is that what people think of? when they hear the word Christian. Unfortunately, the world often thinks of us as judgmental people. I think it's telling us that many of us are like the unforgiving servant in Jesus' parable. The one that the king took repealed his forgiveness and threw him in jail until he could repay, which was going to be never. Does anyone have a problem here? 
We know Jesus is talking about forgiveness in this parable. So that means the king who represents God repeals his forgiveness and throws the man in jail forever, which represents hell. Can this possibly mean that God might take away his forgiveness? That sounds like unforgiveness has become the unforgivable sin. Or that salvation by grace actually depends on our actions in forgiving others? Here's what one commentator says about it. I think it's helpful. I'm going to read it because if your eyes are like mine, you probably can't. How are we forgiven? Only through faith in Jesus and by God's grace. The one who told this story is about to die on the cross to pay the price for the sins of all who believe in him. Now he tells us that God will not forgive those unwilling to forgive as they have been forgiven. This is not because forgiveness is a precondition of salvation, but because forgiveness is a symptom of those who've been truly saved. He goes on, God's grace for us is absolute and our only hope of spending eternity with him, and we cannot earn our forgiveness by forgiving others. Instead, we should understand that the God who saves us begins to change our hearts and make us new in the image of Christ. The ability to forgive those who hurt us is evidence that the Spirit of God in us through faith in Christ is alive and active and at work in us. Those who absolutely refuse to forgive may be showing that they're not willing to receive God's forgiveness for their much larger debt of sin. Again, I think that's helpful. Forgiveness, it's through faith by grace, not works. Grace is absolute, and it's only through Jesus' death. Forgiveness isn't earned by forgiveness. And yet he doesn't shy away from what the passage actually says. Let me read to you what someone else said about this parable. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Well, that's what Jesus said. We need to be really careful that we don't tie ourselves up in knots trying to explain what Jesus really meant. Instead, let's hear what he says and believe. God has forgiven us a debt we could never repay. Therefore, we should forgive others, and if we don't, we will lose our forgiveness. That is what Jesus says. Look, we don't know how we will lose our forgiveness. We don't know how that plays out. Maybe failing to forgive leads us to abandoning the faith, or maybe it shows actually we never really repented in the first place, that we never understood our place before God. But we can only speculate about the mechanics, and I, I think it's dangerous to speculate too much, especially if we find ourselves going down this route. Well, even if I won't forgive, I don't know, whoever, I'll never turn away from Jesus. I'll always follow him. That just doesn't work. Jesus suffered death and God's punishment for sin so he can bring forgiveness to others. And he offers that forgiveness to them despite the cost, despite the fact they can never pay their debt. So this idea that we can somehow follow him and refuse to forgive somebody else at the same time, it just doesn't add up. Following Jesus means continuing his mission to bring the good news of forgiveness to everyone. 
That's what it means to be a Christian. We can't follow him and not forgive. I do know people who've been hurt, been unwilling to forgive, have become bitter and lost their faith. I know some, excuse me, who've uh, eventually repented, but only after causing themselves huge amounts of grief, including causing their own children to fall away. I know some Christians still in churches that I've been to that refuse to do things with certain other Christians in that same church or many people who used to be friends but something has happened and they no longer call them friends because of what was done to them, even among family members. You can probably think of examples yourselves, either in this church or other ones where you've been to before, of people whose friendships have ended because of something that was done. In some cases, it will seem justified. In some of the people I'm thinking of, they were hurt repeatedly by people who hurt many others as well. But in the context of our own forgiveness, in the context of their own forgiveness as Christians, it's not acceptable. It's not justified. In fact, they're examples of exactly what Jesus' story condemns. And as I sat there thinking about other people's failings in the light of this passage, I realised that there was someone that I used to be good friends with and no longer called a friend because of what he's done. So what did I do? Oh, I hunted for so many excuses. <laughs> I thought, well, we might not be friends, but of course I've forgiven him. But Jesus says we need to forgive from our heart. Our forgiveness needs to be sincere, inward and outward. We need to be actually positively disposed to the people that we've forgiven. And then I, I kept working. I thought I had the perfect excuse. He never asked for forgiveness. Surely I shouldn't forgive him if he's never asked for it, right? But as a Christian, I've got that mission to bring forgiveness to others, and I never offered it. Then I thought to myself, great, so if I offer it, I go to him, I talk about how he's hurt me, and he doesn't ask for forgiveness, I'm off the hook. Nothing needs to change. I think I can engineer that outcome. But the context of this passage, remember what came before, it tells me that then I'd need to take some other people with me to convince him, and then if that didn't work, I'd need to take the whole church with me. And suddenly that didn't seem like such a good outcome to engineer. I really wanted that first meeting to go well. You know, I'd always thought of that passage that leads up to this as one that is a way of getting an apology, and if I didn't need an apology, I didn't need to worry about it. But I finally understand that actually it's about restoring relationships. It's hard work for the person who's been wronged, but we are called to do it nonetheless. I mean, it was hard work for Jesus to bring forgiveness to people too. In this context, the forgiveness that Jesus tells Peter we need to repeatedly offer forever requires action, and it's hard. So I finally reached the blatantly obvious conclusion that I needed to meet up with this man. 
As I thought about what I'd say, I realized another blatantly obvious thing that I also needed to apologize for a number of things that I'd done. So I reached out to him. Now I had the added incentive, of course, that I had to stand up here and preach on this passage. But it actually says the same to us all, doesn't it? I, even if I didn't have to, I should have obeyed. And when I did, I made another blatantly obvious observation that when God wants me to do something that I don't want to do, well, I just don't know what's good for me. I really should have done it much earlier. Who knows how the last few years could have been different if I had. Well, let's sum this up. The command to forgive. In the final weeks of Jesus' life on earth, as he's about to go to the cross, he gives a command. The command to forgive our brothers and sisters every sin, every time from the heart. There's four things that I think we've learned. It should be natural. As a response to the incredible, unfathomable, sweet forgiveness that we've received for a debt we could never repay and we really can't even understand the depth. It requires action. We need to actively seek to restore relationships with people we've hurt every time. It might be difficult, not so much because of their sin against us, but because of our sin within us, which we need to repent of. It's good for us, just like all Jesus' commands are, and the sooner the better. And it's a command that comes with a warning. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart.